Okay, so I'm going to read the scripture for us this morning. Um, We have a couple of passages, and then I'll circle back to the first one to repeat it. Um, Our first scripture comes from Proverbs 25. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Um, The second passage comes from Proverbs 2, 1 through 6. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Um, next is from Proverbs 2, 11 through 12. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech. And to circle back around, Proverbs 25. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. All right. Thanks, Becca. Yeah, family, you can go ahead and take a seat. My name is John. I serve as one of the pastors here. We already know that from earlier. And I'm really glad to see you, family. And if you're visiting with us, I'm particularly glad that you're here. If you have any questions about anything that you experience or hear, uh, please seek me out or any one of our other pastors who stood. Uh, They'd be glad to answer your questions for you. Um, Not really. We are really glad that you're here. How many of you have already taken advantage, taken advantage of your newfound freedom and dined in off base? All right. Proud of you, kind of. That's kind of weak. Guys, it's been like how long? A year? You gotta step it up. So you got lunch and dinner. That's how we called it, I don't know, Sunday dinner, lunchtime. Lunchtime, dinner later. So you got two opportunities today to make that happen uh, before we go back to our routines tomorrow. Um, I did not bring my copy of, uh, I just want to show this to you. This is my copy of the book uh, written by Esau McCauley, Reading While Black. I've been working through it. Our uh, lunch in which, at which we're going to discuss what we've learned from the book is next Sunday. It's not too late to join us. If you'd like to, I'd love to have you join us. It is important that you RSVP online. Uh, when you do on our website, we'll, we'll be sure to order the right amount of food. We can eat together now, socially distanced and so forth, so we will. I think we're going to do some jerk chicken probably, hopefully, from down the street. And uh, we'll discuss the book. I've loved it. It's so clear that Esau is a New Testament scholar. It's Uh, uh, the depth of his study is woven throughout the text. But I think what I appreciate more is, man, he cares about God's glory and he cares about gospel centrality. And those themes are so rich in every chapter. My favorite chapter so far has been the chapter on, that deals with Romans, uh, the book of Romans and law enforcement. Uh, Gentle, wise, insightful, and refreshing, and stretching. I've just, I've learned a lot, and uh, I'm looking forward to our lunch next week so we can all share what we've learned and been encouraged by, but but again, please make sure you RSVP online. Good? Good. Let's pray, and we'll get right down to work. Father, we thank you for rescuing us and adopting us into your family as rescued rebels, now sons and daughters, fully loved, fully approved of in Christ, and forever kept. Jesus, thank you for doing the work necessary so that we could be forgiven and adopted in. We do thank you that you put death in its grave. You are a resurrected and rescuing king. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for bringing our hearts to life, tuning our ears so that we would hear our Father's voice, pointing our eyes so that we would see our our rescuing king and older brother, Jesus, and forgive faith. And I pray this morning that you would do for us what you 
uh, did when we first were brought to life, that you would again incline our hearts to our Father's voice, open our ears, and, and turn our gaze onto Jesus. And as we look to him, you would fill our hearts with joy and peace in believing the gospel. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we are three weeks into our Proverbs series. Ron, one of our other pastors, got the first two weeks. I get the last two. Uh, The theme of the series is wisdom. Uh, Nothing you desire compares, right? And our focus this morning will be on um, our hearts. The title of the sermon is Deep Water Drawn Out. And it's going to come from one verse, which may surprise you. It may be the shortest passage of scripture I've ever preached, but based on the first service, it's no true indicator of the amount of time that we'll spend together discussing that verse. Here's the verse, Proverbs 20, verse 5. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Sometimes in the Bible, when the word man is used, it actually means men, not women. But very often when it's used, it's used inclusively of mankind, people. So that would be an example here. Both of these mean people. The purpose in a person's heart is like deep water, but a person of understanding will draw it out. Here's the big idea for the sermon this morning. The depths of my heart, often unexplored and dark, must be drawn out and redeemed. We will look first at the depth of our heart, my heart's depth. Secondly, we will turn to see my heart's desire and desperate need. And third and finally, we will turn to see our heart's redemption in Jesus. So let's begin with my heart's depth. Proverbs 20, verse 5, the purpose in a man's heart is like deep water. Now that word purpose is used in a lot of different places in the Old Testament, but it's not always rendered purpose in English for us. Here are a couple of other ways the word is translated. It can, it can be translated as schemes, plans, strategy, plotting, counsel, advice, even order, the order that's there. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that this word purpose is a word with a wide range of meaning. Big meaning, right? Wide range. And so what it does is it points to everything that resides in my heart. Everything that resides in my heart. Here are some examples. It's pointing to my thoughts, my intentional thoughts and those thoughts that come out of the blue where you almost catch yourself, but what, what am I thinking right now and where did that come from? And I'm glad nobody else can see what I'm thinking uh, because I would be really embarrassed right now. So intentional thoughts, out of the blue thoughts, my ideas, my convictions, my philosophy in life, even my self-talk, okay? So my thoughts, my identity, how I view myself, how other people view me, or maybe I should say how I like to think other people view me or how I fear other people view me, those thoughts as well. My hopes, my desires, my plans for a future, uh, my strategy or schemes. In other words, how I intend to turn my desire that I have into plan and then turn my plan into reality so that it's actually known, right? All of that. My passions, those things or people that I love, that I have to have. The things I believe I have to have in life to be happy, to be whole. My feelings, all of them, my joys, my sorrows, my happiness, my sadness, and everything in between. And so my woundings, purpose would include my woundings, all of my hurt, all of my pain, 
And we know from personal experience that woundings left uncared for lead us to an unhealthy place of reactivity relationally. There's a quote that I really appreciate from a counselor named Rich Plass. He writes, our reactive state of being is like a virus infecting every relationship. It is like a cancer wreaking havoc on the relational core of our very being. So all of these things that we just described, thoughts, identity, hope, strategy, passions, feelings, woundings, our reactivity, all of these things, every purpose in my heart has been shaped by my nature, okay, flashback to college or maybe high school, my nature and my nurture, my nature and my nurture. You're like, well, John, what do, you, what do you mean by that? Here's what I mean, my nature. I am created in the Mago Dei, the image of God, that's my nature. And so I reflect something of who God is. So I reflect it most in my soul or in my heart. So you would expect that there's a real depth to who I am as a person simply because I'm created in the image of God. So capacity for thought, capacity for uh, profound emotion, capacity for love, all of these things are a result of being created in the image of God. That's my nature, but it's not the only piece of my nature, right? Because I'm created in the image of God, but then I rebelled. I inherited Adam's rebellion, the first man, Adam, we inherit the consequences and his nature, but even if I didn't inherit his, I would still prove to be every, month, every bit the rebel that he was, right? So that's part of my nature too. The beauty that I bear as, a, as an image bearer of God in my heart is tragically broken and twisted and dark and deceptive, right? There's, that's a part of my nature too. So I'm created in the image of God, but I am a rebel, but then the hope of the gospel is that when we turn to Jesus by faith, the Father actually rips in, he, he, he tears out our rebel heart, our heart of stone, and he gives us a new heart, a heart of flesh, and that heart is reoriented on Jesus, so my, rather than being consumed with me, my affections are back on my creator, my allegiances, rather than being on me, are back on my creator. I still have remaining rebel tendencies, but I have a new heart, right? So that's all part of my nature, and I'm formed by those things. My heart is formed by those things. And then there's my nurture, where I grew up. I grew up in the Northeast, my family of origin, how they loved me or didn't love me, what they did say to me or what they did not say to me, right? The way that I was treated or the way that I was not treated. All of these things influence my heart. The decade that I grew up in, I'm a child of the 80s. Some of you think you know the 80s because you've watched a few episodes of Stranger Things. You know nothing of the 80s. It was a glorious decade in which to be a young boy. At least, at least I should say, not glorious for everybody because that's not a fair statement to me. In my own personal lived experience in the 80s in Vermont on a farm, it was a, it was a magical, magical existence. Most of you are children of the 90s. Some of you, Bryce does not want to stay on, some of you were uh, children of, how do we say it, the 2000s? Crazy. You could be my kid, which is crazy. So we're formed by all those things. Those things nurture us. But we nurture ourselves now, also. I, I nurture my heart through what I watch, through what I listen to, through the friends that I make. Um, through my self-talk, my speech, all of these things. We're always nurturing our hearts in one way or the other. Okay, so nature and nurture. 
So how would we describe, how would the Bible describe the purposes of our heart? Well, here in Proverbs, they're described like deep water. And that phrase, deep water, simply means deep means below the surface and vast. So it's, it's out of sight, it's below the surface, and it's vast, unimaginable, huge. Remember, again, because we're created in the Imago Dei, vast. The word also suggests an undiscovered depth, undiscovered depth. Not deep end of the pool. Anybody afraid of the deep end of the pool when you were a kid? A little bit, you know what I was afraid of? I was afraid of the deep water that was too dark to be able to really see. There was one pond near a place, my parents' place, that had just full of snakes. In the Northeast, really weird for it to be like that, but dark water and full of snakes. I hated going there to swim, right? We get afraid of the deep and the dark water. But that's not how the Bible is describing our heart. The Bible is describing our heart more like the deep end of the ocean, a chasmic depth unsearchable depth. And at that depth, guys, there is a darkness that exists in our hearts. So dark, you can't see. It would be like this. Close your eyes, real tight, like squint tight, as hard as you can. That dark. Now, if we were to turn off all the lights, darker than that, there is a, you can open them now, there's a place in our hearts that is so chasmically deep that we actually don't have the ability to see accurately what is going on there. It's impossible. And because that is true, it is difficult to know our own hearts. This word, or these words, um, deep water, would suggest a mystery about our own hearts. I know you think other people's hearts are a mystery. If you're married, your spouse's heart is your spouse's heart a mystery. The Bible's saying your own heart is a mystery to you. You don't know it like you think you do dark and mysterious. And in that darkness and that mystery, there is a level of deception that we're uncomfortable acknowledging. But the Bible acknowledges it for us. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Not in our original created nature as image bearers of God. Not there, but after the brokenness, the rebellion, the sin, the turning away from our creator. Deception is introduced in that darkness and it's deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's not asking the question, can you understand another person's heart? Jeremiah is asking, can you understand your own heart? And Jeremiah's answer for you, in case you don't want to answer it for yourself, is no, you cannot. So let me ask you a question. What lies in the cosmic depths at the bottom of your heart? What lives there? What exists in the darkest places of your heart that have yet to see the light of day? What is something that you know about yourself and your heart that nobody else in this room knows and perhaps nobody else in the world has ever found out? We all have something residing at the cosmic depths of our heart that is unknown. Now, we have to acknowledge based on what the Bible says, there are things in our heart at that level that we don't even know about ourselves. An article last year on CNN actually asked the same question, not about our hearts, but about the ocean. And the question was, what lies in the cosmic depths at the bottom of the world's seas? That question was the start of an article telling a story about a guy named Victor Vescovo. He's an American undersea explorer, and he had recently become the first person to dive to the deepest points of the Earth's five oceans, all five, all five of the deepest points. One of those places is known as the Challenger Deep. 
Here's a picture right here on a map. The Challenger Deep is actually just south of here. It's in the Western Pacific, specifically in the Mariana Trench, right? Just south of Guam. Many of you go to Guam. Any divers? Anybody been in that area to dive? No. Okay, so you got to do it. You're in Oki. You can make it down to Guam, and you can go check that out. The Challenger Deep. Challenge Deep. It is the lowest point in the Earth's crust, almost seven miles deep from the surface to the, to the, to the ocean floor. One person wrote about it this way. He said, the actual deepness of Challenger Deep strains the imagination. Now, we need to take that quote about the Challenger Deep and apply it to our hearts as we understand it. Being created in the image of God. So that vastness, but also the brokenness in our vastness. So those realities should strain our imaginations as to the depths of our own hearts. Seven miles deep. So I did a little math this week. I may have been an ASVAB waiver, so I think I'm close, but... Check it out, seven miles, so for you Marines in the room, that's like two of your PFTs plus change. So you're running two, not there and back, but like two straight out to get to the bottom. Uh, for you Army guys in the room, that's three of your physical fitness challenges and some change, okay? I'm not, not trying to make anybody feel a certain kind of way. Uh, Navy, which, hey, um, just don't let it get out of the room, but I am a reservist, so this is my tribe right here. Five of our physical fitnesses, right, and some change. Um, Air Force, I'm not forgetting you, sorry. We'll, we'll explain running to you later on today. I don't, have time, I don't have time to do that right now. It's deep, okay? Guys, thousand, listen, another, another author wrote about this. He says, listen, we gotta think about it this way. How many people have been to the top of Mount Everest? Thousands. Many have died in the attempt, but thousands of people have made that journey. Thousands. How many people have been to the moon? A handful. Right, a handful of people have been to the moon. How many people have been to the Challenger Deep? Three in the history of the world that we know of. Only three people have ever done that. Vescovo, who I told you about. And then on January 23rd, 1960, two others, guys named Walsh and Picard, uh, they made the trip as well. Three people. It's crazy, right? Maybe you could be the fourth. Maybe you could be the fourth. Let me ask you this question, though. How many people have been to the challenger deep of your heart? Fewer than three, probably. Probably fewer than three. Let me ask you this question. Have you been? Like, seriously, in all seriousness, have you been to that place in your heart with light shown on it to see the truth? Have you been there? For most of us, fewer people have been to the depths of our heart than have actually been to the real Challenger Deep in the Mariana Trench. Yet, what we know from the Bible is this is one of our greatest needs and one of your greatest desires. Which brings us to our second point. Our, our heart's desire and our desperate need is, as we see in Proverbs 20 verse 5, is to be drawn out. To be drawn out. We want to be known at that level. We need to be known at that level. You have a desire to be known and loved and accepted in spite of what resides in the depths of your heart. Uh, Rich Plass, who I quoted a few moments ago, he says this. He says, a deep participation in the life of another is the lifeblood of the soul. Absent this depth, you know the lifeblood is not coursing through your veins. You're created for it, and you know it. Even if you don't believe in creation, and if you don't, I'm really glad that you're here. Even if you disbelieve a God created mankind, 
you still know that deep within you is a desire to be known at that level. Where'd that desire come from? Where does that need originate? I would suggest to you it's, it originates because you have been created in the image of God, the Imago Dei, and you know it. You know deep down you're, there is no way the complexity of your soul is a cosmic accident. There's no way. And you want to be known this way. And many of you are in a, an intimate relationship because you have felt a need to be known in this way. And when you're not, or when you feel that you're not, something feels disordered and broken. That's what Proverbs says right here. The depths of my heart need to be drawn out. Those words drawn out simply mean this. Simply means this. That somebody sends a bucket down to the lowest point and fills it up with whatever's found there and then draws the bucket back up to the surface and sits there with the content of the bucket and examines it. That's what it means to be drawn out. Send a bucket down, fill it up, pull it back, and explore what's there. Now, if you spend some time in Scripture, we know that primarily whom is responsible for doing your heart work? Who's responsible? Who do you think? We are, right? God has created us to be accountable, moral agents. I have a responsibility. I will give an account to God, my creator, for my heart. And I have a responsibility to do certain work within my heart. Here's an example from Proverbs chapter 4, uh, verse 23. Uh, the writer of Proverbs says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. So that word literally means keep watch over. The command is to you. You have a responsibility to keep watch over your heart. It's so vital because every aspect of your existence, your life, flows from the depths of your heart. You keep watch over it. But who is doing the work of drawing out a heart here? Someone else, right? The command's not that you go draw out your heart. The implication is that you submit to the drawing out of your heart that somebody else is doing it for you, not yourself. But there's a real problem now. If we were just created in the image of God and the rebellion had not occurred, there'd be no problem. You can draw my heart out all day long. I will let you in. I will help you. I've got nothing to hide. There's no darkness, no deception, no brokenness, no false self, no pretense. How do we know the rebellion happened? Because we don't like to have our hearts drawn out now. We're afraid to have our hearts drawn out. We know we need it, and at some level we want it, but at some level we don't. We tend to keep people out because there is a brokenness of which we're ashamed. There are things that have happened to us that we're ashamed of. There are things that we have done that we are ashamed of. There are thoughts that we think. There are words that we have said. There are things that we have done in the darkness and behind closed doors that reside only, we think, in the depths the vastness below the surface, and it's safer there. We're afraid. And so there's brokenness and pride, and a, we project a false self. And there's even a false self that resides in my heart because it's safer than my true self. What are we afraid of? 
We know we're afraid of being found out. I think one of our fears is that should our heart be exposed, people who I think love me or are close to me will actually be indifferent at what's there, disinterested. That introduces pain. But I think the greater fear that we understand from the gospel is that there would be a rejection for who I really am when I am laid bare. But what the writer of Proverbs is saying, what our father is speaking to us this morning is someone needs to go in. The rope has to be let down, the bucket needs to be filled up, and it needs to be drawn out, and the light needs to shine on it. You need to be drawn out, to be explored, to be known, to have another set of eyes see and understand what is in the depths of my heart, what is in the darkness, so that I can be helped, so that I can find healing, ultimately that I can find redemption in Jesus, because in the depths of my heart, I will find a heart that is not oriented on my creator like it should be, and that is the root of all of this disorder. My heart is oriented on myself. And Jesus does the redeeming work first of reorienting my heart, recreating my heart, and restoring my heart into the image of God that I was created in. So that brings us to the question then, okay, if that's necessary work, who is going to do it? Who would want to do it? Who's able to do it? Who can do that work? Well, thankfully we have the answer here in Proverbs. Our third point, my heart's redemption has to be accomplished by a person of understanding. A person of understanding. Like, all right, good, we got a title. Where exactly do I find one of those? Right? How do I order one of those? How do I, I need an appointment with a person of understanding, please. What is that? Who is that? Guys, it is our father's design that his family, the church, would be a people of understanding. It is God's design that you would find that kind of a person in his family. So we know the church is global, right? Some people use the word universal. That's fine. It's global. But we also know that it's true that wherever you go, wherever the gospel has been, there will be a physical, real expression of God's family. You can touch it. You can see it. You can exist in it. And it's our father's design that in that family, in that expression of his family localized, not that there will just be a person of understanding, right? We don't have a guru in the family that we go to. I mean, we do. His name is Jesus. But that the culture of the family would be such that we are a family of or a people of understanding so that this kind of work can be culturally normative and accomplished in the everyday stuff of life. Well, how does that happen? Thankfully, the writer of Proverbs also tells us that. Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. Look at this. Remember, the author of Proverbs is writing as the posture of a father, writing to a son who's growing up into manhood. That's helpful for us because the church isn't like a family. We are a family. And so our father is speaking to us as young sons and daughters adopted into the family saying, this is not only who I want you to grow up into. This is who I want you to be. This is how we get there. Like this is how our family will grow up into this kind of a family. So how's it, how's it happen? My son, my daughters, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments within you, and here we go, this is key, verse two, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to, here's our word, to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and you raise your voice for understanding, 
if you seek it like silver, so silver being a prized, valued commodity, so whatever your most prized, valued commodity is, you set your heart, you go hard after that thing, so you seek understanding like silver, and you search for it as for that time you lost your wallet or you lost your ID, right? You, you go hard after it. You make it your aim. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord. And in understanding the fear of the Lord, right? Right relationship with God, reverence for the Father, a heart oriented on Jesus, fear of the Lord. Then I find the knowledge of God. Now notice this key right here in verse six. For the Lord gives wisdom. And where does the understanding in our family come from? Here's the answer. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Now, drop down to verses 11 and 12. Look at this, this beautiful gift. When the family gains understanding, right? When that is in our culture and we are these kind of people who will let the rope down and pull it up. We are the person or the people of understanding. Verse 11, understanding will what? What's the gift that it gives to our family? Guard you. It will guard your heart, delivering you from the way of evil. Now, as Christians, we read that and we're like, way of evil out there. But that's not what he's saying. Guys, the gospel says the way of evil is here in my heart and in this room. We're not culture warriors. We're not opposed to people who don't love Jesus or know Jesus. We're not against people. So this way of evil thing is not a way of talking about people out there. It's a way of describing our own hearts. And what's going to protect us from our own hearts? A, pe a person, a people, a family, a culture of understanding that has come directly from the Father himself, and most importantly, submitting to that culture. It'll guard us from men, or from the evil way, and from men of perverted speech, women of perverted speech. Guys, so we can understand it this way. Understanding is a gift from the Father. And where does it come from? This is really important. Where, how does the Father give us this gift? Through his mouth, right? So through words spoken, and I love this. We're not gonna turn there, but what does John chapter one say about Jesus? Jesus is who? The word spoken in flesh and blood. So Jesus is the embodiment of this understanding. He is the true and better understanding. So we, we look to him, and when we see Jesus, uh, we receive this gift from the Father through the Spirit. Remember, we just finished up in 1 Corinthians, and what were some of the gifts of the Spirit that we saw? Word of wisdom, word of knowledge. I think categorically you could put even prophetic word. You could categorically put all of those things into understanding, right? From the Father, embodied in Jesus, through the Spirit. And fam, listen, here, here's your, if you want, if, if you're the kind of person that needs a command, just tell me what I have to do, here's what you have to do. You, the, our Father is saying, you have to seek this like you seek nothing else. You've got to do it. Not the pastors, not the missional community leaders, every member of God's family, every rescued and rebel, every son or daughter, this right here, pursuing this. Pursue it. Now, this language all through this passage reminded me of my son, Owen. I asked him permission to show you this picture and tell you the story, and he said yes, but he's not in here, sadly, right now, because he would love this. Reminded me of Owen this week. Um, we bought him some chocolate waffles for breakfast, vegan, grass-fed, 
all the things, okay? Don't judge. Chocolate waffles, and actually probably none of those things, but they're really good. And once he found out the chocolate waffles in, their house, in the house, he's like, Dad, I need, I need, was the word, cream. I need cream for the waffles. So being the loving dad that I am, you need cream? I got you cream, buddy. So I, I came to work that day, finished up, swung through the commissary, show up with cream. Now, once my son's heart knew that the cream was in the house, what do you think he thought about all week? <laughs> cream. I need cream. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks. Dad, and this is a long-standing family tradition going back generations. So this is inherited. Don't judge. And again, we could zoom in on the label, pure dairy. It's all the good things, okay? Um, you, want son, you want cream, son? I'll give, you, I'll give you cream. His heart fixed on the cream. He asked for it constantly. He asked for it relentlessly. His appetite could not be satisfied. He'd open the fridge himself, all the things, all week long. Guess what? Three days later, cream's gone. Cream's gone. Why? Owen embodied the posture that's being described for us there, guys. The way my son pursued that cream for his taste buds, that is the way our dad wants us to give ourselves to relentlessly pursuing understanding for his fame and for the good of his family. It guards us. It is one of the most beautiful and life-giving gifts you can give to the family as a rescued in son and daughter. And guys, this is for you as adults. And if you're not an adult here, for you kids, for you teenagers, that's for you too. There's no age limit to this thing. You can be a person of understanding at the age of 12. You can be a person of understanding at the 82 or not, right? This is for all of us. All right, we got to keep pressing. So our Father's commanding us to seek Him, to become a people of understanding, to gain this so that we can recognize undiscovered depths and resolve to draw people out and give this gift of guarding. Man, I just want to point this out. Next Saturday morning, 7 o'clock, third floor, uh, men's breakfast, socially distanced, all the things. Um, the focus of our time together is going to be on men and meaningful relationships with other men. Okay? And I'm not saying you need this. I'm not saying it. Uh, your father, uh, through Proverbs, is saying you need this. Like We need this, guys. Okay, so uh, 7 o'clock um, next Saturday morning. And if you park over at like, Gunner's Gym, Air Force, we can run over together, and then we can revisit this whole, we can run together. That'd be cool. Ha-ha. <laughs> Thank you. All right. I want to say something about posture. Um, the writer of Proverbs really cares about our posture. It's not enough just to be people of understanding. There's a way in which we can be life-giving people of understanding. And there's a way we can be jerks, too. So this is really important. Uh, Proverbs 2520, uh, this might be the most important piece of our posture. It's just, it's empathy. It's empathy. Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda or Mentos in cola, however you want to translate that right there, okay? Guys, our tone matters. The content of what we say matters. Empathy. No cliches, no bumper sticker Christianity, no uh, coffee mugs, right? Like um, in... In spending time with somebody, we're talking about a person's heart. This is sacred space. And so we're not, we're not coming in hard like we have a lot of good things that we need to say. We're coming in with empathy. And so if there's wounding or broken, we sit in that with somebody. We do a lot of listening, but it's with an empathetic, gentle posture. Because if, if not, we're like this person who sings songs to a heavy heart. And it's like ripping somebody's coat off in, in 
on a cold winter morning, right? So empathy, but also having a posture of patiently asking questions and listening. Look at Proverbs 18, 13. It says this, if one, if a person gives an answer before he hears it, it is folly and a shame to him. Remember when I mentioned Walsh and Picard and their trip to the bottom? Do you know how long uh, their journey was to get to the Challenger Deep? You know how long? Five hours. You know how long they spent at the bottom? 30 minutes. So again, ASVAB waiver, but bear with me. I think if my math is right, what's the ratio? 10 to 1? Is that 10 to 1? Got some head nods? Other ASVAB waivers in the room? Thank you. All right. 10 to 1. Thanks, Scott. I'm not, Scott's not an ASVAB waiver. He's one of the smartest dudes in the room. He, he helped me out. I was just saying thanks, Scott. Um, 10 to 1, guys. 10 to 1. That's what the writer of Proverbs is getting at here, where he says, Whoever answers a matter before he hears it, it is a folly and a shame to him. We have to be willing to do the work, to send the bucket down, and patiently wait, and ask questions, and ask more questions, and exhaust the questions so that we are not giving advice before we have fully heard a person's sincere expression from their heart. This matters very much. A well-known counselor by the name of Ed Welch wrote something about questions and patience that I love. Check this out. I'm sorry, this is a huge quote. Just take a picture of it. Here's what he says. Surface-level questions are fine, but like appetizers before a good meal, we don't want to get filled up on them because they ask for nothing personal. Good conversations go a little farther. We hope to learn what is important to the person we're talking to, which is another way of saying that we hope to hear what is on his or her heart. Now notice these very important words, the way in, the way in. So the way to get the rope to the bottom, the way in, is to listen for what is dear, what is loved, what is feared, what is hard. We listen for how someone feels. We listen for signs of life. You follow the affections. You follow what excites, what is prized, and what is hard. We listen for likes and dislikes. We listen for feelings and emotions because they reveal hopes and fears. And we listen for God's place in it all. In other words, we listen to that person's perspective of God's place in it all. So we, we come in with empathy. We're gentle and our tone and our content matches the condition of the person's heart. Empathy. And then we're patient and we ask a ton of questions, and we know people by name. We, we, we get to know them by name. We give ourselves, it's so hard in this context, isn't it? In and out, constant turnover, but we commit ourselves to stop using words like brother, sister, yo, hey, man, dog, whatever vernacular we use, which is fine, but we're more committed to the well-being of each other's hearts, and so we learn names, and we call each other by the name, the same name that God the Father calls us by name, and so that culture, we reflect that in our culture. And guys, you have the perfect opportunity right now to change course. I struggle with this. Many of us struggle with this. Rona's given you the perfect out. Everybody's wearing a mask. So you can just lead with, hey, have we met before? And then if they answer yes, be like, man, I'm so sorry. The mask is just throwing it all off right now. Like I can't. So it, it's the perfect out for all of us. But we, we can change course and we can know people in this way. So it's God's design that on a day-to-day -day basis, the culture of this family would be such that we would each be in relationship with other people who are persons of understanding so that our hearts can be drawn out. That's, that should be normative for our family. So for me, one of those guys in our family is, is Ron Koya, another one of our pastors. 
And we have these kinds of conversations all the time. Recently, I said, hey, Ron, this was said to me. Um, this is how I feel about what was said to me. I'm not sure if I can trust kind of what I heard or the way that I'm feeling about it, I guess, is more what I was getting at. And so we sat together and he asked a bunch of questions. And at the end of the conversation, he's like, yeah, you, John, you've got to let that go. You, you can't trust the way that you're feeling about those words. You're not giving the benefit of the doubt to the person who spoke those things, right? He, he pulled my bucket up and helped me to look at those things. We need that in our family. Last night, I sat around, sat around a table with six other dudes, and uh, part of their homework was to come back to the table and to actually ask those kinds of questions of each other and invite them into the, like, basically say, yo, throw a bucket down to the depths of my heart, pull up the water, and tell me what you see, right? That, that's how we submit to the culture that God says should, should exist in this family. Now, that would be our day-to-day But there's also a periodic piece or a seasonal rhythm that we should adopt if we really have this high view of the image of God and the depth of our hearts. And that is this. Seasonally, you should submit yourself to a counselor. So it should be in the day-to-day relationships that we have. Seasonally, once a season, once a year, a couple times a year, uh, for a season, you seek out a counselor, somebody you know loves God, loves the gospel, but is skilled because they've given five to 10 years of their life to studying the heart, and they possess a unique God-given ability to run a rope, to run a bucket down deep, and to pull it up and to ask the, the right questions of our hearts. That should be normative in a Christian community. It should be normative in a community that has a high view of the image of God. If we don't believe any of this, then forget counselors. They won't, there's, there's no reason. But here, look, I'm not saying this. This is what our father's saying. Look at this in Proverbs. He says this, Proverbs 11:14, where there is no guidance, a people falls. And what's the second half of that say? But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. So let's state that negatively. In the absence of skilled counselors, you are at great danger and your heart runs a real risk. You should go get a counselor. You should have a counselor. Not all the time, but once a year. Let's look at your wife and be like, hey, I think we should, we should go visit a counselor. And let them ask a ton of questions. Let them throw a bucket down and see what they pull up. Like, let's find out. Every three years, seasonally, whatever, whatever rhythm is there, we should have counselors. I have a counselor, and we meet regularly, and he drops buckets in ways I don't like buckets being dropped. And he pulls up all kind of stuff that I didn't even know was in my heart. And he brings the gospel to bear on it, and it's great safety for my heart. For some of us, maybe there'd be real wisdom in going to see a doctor, because maybe the depths of our heart are being affected by our physical or mental wellness, and maybe the right care for your body or your mind would free you up to do the hard work that your father wants you to do, not just in the everyday stuff of the life of our church, but also with a counselor who loves Jesus and will point you to the gospel. These things should be normative for us. The taboos should be crushed. The stereotypes should be crushed. The gospel should make these things normal. If we have a high view of the image of God and understand the vastness of our hearts, these things would be celebrated in our family. No shame, no taboo. Um, Wise people seek counsel. Now, as good and as necessary as it is for you to belong to a church family that is full of people of understanding, that is a gift to you from the Father. 
And as wise and as good as it is for you to submit yourself to periodic seasonal counseling, and that is a gift to you from the Father, they are imperfect and incomplete and can only do so much for your heart. They are a shadow of a truer and a better person of understanding that can only be found in the person of Jesus alone. Jesus is the true and better understanding one. Psalm 44, 21 says this, he knows the secrets of our hearts. Guys, there are secrets of your own heart that you don't know. Did you know that? Your heart keeps secrets on you. Did you know that? Like, that's really what the gospel says. Your heart keeps secrets from you. Your heart also lies to you. Jesus is the only one who knows the secrets of your heart. That's Psalm 44, 1. We know this from John 2.25. John says, he himself knew what was in man. He knows. I don't even fully know what is inside of me. Jesus alone knows what lies at the challenger deep in your heart. Jesus alone knows what is yet to see the light of day. Hebrews 4.13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. No hiding. Guys, we think that vast, dark space in our heart is a place to hide things. It's not. Everything in your heart is already known by the God who created you. And we will give an account for all of those hidden things that we think are there. You know what the beauty of the gospel is? I love it. Did you know that you can see what Jesus sees in your heart? Did you know that? You can see exactly what Jesus sees in your heart. Like he knows these things about you and you can see what he sees. He will show you what he sees. We know this. How is the word described in Psalms, especially? The word is a lamp and a light. Can we have that picture of the Challenger Deep back up? I love this. You can't see anything down in the Challenger Deep unless you have a light like this. Guys, that is the word of God at work in your heart. It exposes the darkness and brings light to the deception. And it is the only way that you can ever see your true self. It's the only pathway to redemption. The light of Christ has to shine in the darkness the depths of your heart. Now, this reality that our heart is naked and exposed in front of Jesus, our creator, is either a source of fear for you or of great confidence. There's no middle ground. If you are not yet a Christian, and man, I'm, I'm really glad that you're here, but if you are not yet a Christian, you don't know Jesus as your rescuing king, the Bible would say that you know him only as your future judge. And we just learned that you can't Keep any secrets from him. Your heart is fully exposed. And we read that you will one day give an account for every secret in your heart. He will be your judge. And he's a righteous judge. There's no, there's no, there's no leniency. We, we give full account for everything in our rebel hearts. That should strike great fear into our hearts. Great fear to face Jesus as judge. However, if you are a Christian... If you have turned to Jesus as your rescuing king, Jesus is no longer your judge. He is your rescuer and your 
uh, redeemer, the one who makes you whole. And so the fear is, is replaced by confidence. And here's your confidence. You know that Jesus is the only one who sees you. He knows you for who you are. Your exposure led you to run to him so that you would know mercy instead of judgment. And so you know Jesus not as a judge, but as a rescuer. And what you know about Jesus is this. He knows who you are, and he doesn't reject you. He knows all of your secrets, and he doesn't reject you. Instead, he loves you, and he died for you, and he defeated death in the grave for you. And now he is seated with the Father, and he advocates on your behalf. And so as a follower of Jesus now, as you think about him seeing your heart, you can say things like this. Jesus didn't just see my griefs. He bore my griefs. He didn't just see my sorrows. He carried my sorrows. He didn't just see my transgressions. Jesus shines the light of his gospel into my heart. He sees all the wicked, nasty, evil, vile thoughts I've thunk and the actions I've taken against other people and the selfishness, all the rebellion against God. He sees it all with his light. He's not like, yo, you got to fix that. He owns it and all the wickedness in your heart, the rebellion, he takes it and he takes it on himself and he's crushed because of it where you should have been crushed. He bears our griefs. He carries our sorrows. He is pierced for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. And Isaiah says, upon him was the chastisement that brought me peace and with his wounds, I am healed. Guys, the gospel is good news for you. Your heart can know peace, and your heart can be healed. You can be seen, you can be known, you can be loved, you can be healed, and you can be kept. And the only one who will ever do that for you, the only one who is able, is Jesus himself. Do you know we're like the woman at the well? Remember the woman at the well in John? Gospel of John. Jesus shows up. He asks her for a drink, right? He says, yo, throw your bucket down into the well. Or little did she know the bucket was actually going to be thrown down into the well of her heart and pulled back up and everything exposed. But again, not with Jesus as judge, but with Jesus as merciful, rescuing king. And so she leaves that conversation. Do you remember what she says? She says to all of her neighbors, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. And when she said did, it's not just the things that I have done that people know about, she's referring to the vast darkness of her heart. Come see the man who told me everything I ever thought, who exposed all my secrets, and instead of shaming me, is giving me life. Can this be the Christ? Can he be my rescuer? Is her question, but it's not a question of uncertainty. It's a question now of confidence. She had been seen, she had been known, and she wasn't rejected. She was being redeemed by Jesus. I love this quote from Tim Keller. He says this, To be loved but not known is comforting, but superficial. Many of us are in relationships like this. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear, but to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Guys, in the Psalms, we find a prayer of David that goes like this, Psalm 139, verse 23. David prays, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Do you know that was meant to be a daily prayer? Daily. Can we just ask another question, family? Have we even prayed that yet this year? 
Have we prayed that this year? When is the last time we begged Jesus to go to the challenger deep of our hearts and to pull it up so the light could be shown on it? Please listen to me, family. Friends, please listen. A heart undiscovered by Jesus is a dead heart. A heart unexplored by Jesus is a dying heart, but the exploratory light of a resurrected Jesus brings dead hearts to life the same way he put death in the grave. He conquered the grave, fam. And if he conquered the grave, he can conquer the deadness that currently exists in your heart and he can replace it with life. It would be a great time for us to pray to Christ, to go to the challenger deep of our hearts, to shine his light, to show us and to lead us into the way of life. And normally what we're used to as a family at the conclusion of our sermons, we have one of our, a member of our pastoral team come and serve us by praying a prayer of response, repenting, confessing sin, thanking God for his grace. But our team of pastors spoke together recently and were like, man, we're, as a team, we're taking all those opportunities for prayer. And it's not like we're the only ones who hear from the Holy Spirit. Pastors don't have a unique access to God through the Spirit. That's something we share together as a family. You, you, whenever we hear our Father's voice, the Spirit goes to work in our hearts and tells us what we need to hear and prompts our heart and moves our heart. And so what we thought was, we really like for other members of our family, men and women, to have the opportunity to come after the Word's been preached and simply to pray in response to the work that the Spirit is doing in their hearts. We think that would be life-giving to other members of our family, and we think it would be life-giving for the person who has the opportunity to pray. It'd be life-giving for all of us. So this morning, we've asked Becca to come and pray, a prayer response, just interacting with the work that the Spirit has done uh, in her life. Becca.